Hello and welcome to Deltec Markets Monday for the 22nd of February 2016. Good morning those in the Americas, good afternoon those in Europe and good evening those in Asia. If we could have all the callers please mute your lines uh, and you can unmute when we open up for Q&A at the end of the call. Today we'll be running through our usual agenda. Firstly looking at investment market movements over the past week, a stronger week. Uh, secondly we'll touch on what the economic data was telling us and news flow was telling us over the past week. Thirdly, we'll touch on our preview of what to expect for uh, economic data and markets over the coming week. Fourthly, we'll touch on our investment ideas for this week. This week, uh, it's a research redux piece. Uh, as we always do six weeks after the publication of our quarterly outlook, we revisit it to look at some of our key calls uh, and review whether they are indeed still intact. And finally, we'll touch on our uh, tactical investment positioning at the end of the call. So firstly, looking at investment markets over the past week, a stronger week, a corrective bounce following last week's market lows. In equities, emerging markets outperformed developed markets. In fixed income, high yield outperformed investment grade, although still very much underperforming over the past month. In commodity markets, industrial metals and oil prices moved higher, leading the commodities complex. Natural gas prices were significantly lower. And in currency markets, the US dollar was index was stronger. Uh, primarily against the euro, where it declined, uh, the euro declined by 1.1%. Uh, across developed markets, interesting to note that the strongest performance was from Japan, uh, up 6.79%, but still down 6.34% over the past week. In emerging market equities, the strongest performance uh, was out from South Korea, uh, generating 4.41% returns. Uh, all markets are still negative for the quarter. Uh, and as we said, it was a, a corrective bounce, but one which we think could extend as we move into the early parts of Q2. And we'll touch on that more as we look at uh, our expectations for markets and our investment ideas for this week. Looking at economic data over the past week, in the US, data was above expectations, driven by housing data, which was a key positive. Uh, housing remains one of our key overweight calls. It represents 15% of our tactical portfolios. Um, we're positive on housing from both a tactical perspective but also from a secular perspective as we look at the favourable demographics impacting US housing over the coming years. Uh, as well as that, industrial pr production data was stronger in the US. Uh, you'll recall that two weeks ago we published a note, a uh, contrarian idea looking at industrial production being at a trough at a time when everyone was turning quite negative on the US, believing that it was entering a, a recession. Uh, indeed, the industrial production data came out above expectations, rising by 0.9% in January, above the prior reading as well. In Europe, data was below consensus expectations. We've clearly seen a softening in European uh, market data, as well as that a softening in European economic activity in response to the volatility uh, that we saw caused by the ECB failing to act at the December ECB meeting. We continue to expect the ECB to act at the March 10th meeting. We are expecting uh, potentially a further reduction in, uh, in interest rates as well as an expansion of the asset purchase program to assist the European banking system. That is likely to place, continue to place downwards pressure on the euro uh, as at this morning it's uh, trading just over 110 versus the US dollar, so down from its 113 highs that we saw earlier this month. In Japan, data was uh, generally below consensus expectations, and in China, uh, the first batch of data released post the, uh, uh, post the Chinese New Year, money supply data was well above expectations, a huge amount of liquidity being injected into the Chinese financial system prior to the Chinese New Year. Uh, but against that huge expansion in money supply, 
if we look at real economic data, it's actually quite weak. Trade data was weak, uh, as well as that we saw inflation data quite weak in China. Turning our attention now to data expectations over the coming week, it's an incredibly important week when we look at the global cycle. We've got PMI data out from all major regions. So far we've seen Japanese PMI disappoint, we've seen European PMI data disappoint, both of them out overnight. Uh, but that's really, uh, PMI indicators are one of the better leading indicators uh, for the outlook for global industrial production growth or global growth. Uh, and so the data that we're seeing out this week will be incredibly important there. As well as that, we'll be following US housing data closely as well, existing home sales and new home sales. Uh, whilst we do have that 15% allocation towards housing, we are looking for opportunities to increase the exposure. If we look at Europe, we've also got a, a raft of economic and industrial confidence data out as well. In Japan and China, there is second-tier data out, uh, which we're not expecting to move markets. So an important week for data, an important week for calling the global cycle. Now if we turn our attention to our investment idea for this week, it's a research read-up piece, so a piece that we're republishing due to its importance or investment market activity. Uh, it's a republication of our quarter one 2016 Deltec quarterly global strategy outlook entitled Exit Strategies. And really the theme of this presentation was looking at how market participants should be positioning themselves in an environment where we're clearly seeing an exit strategy from the Federal Reserve from almost a decade of very low interest rates uh, and of loose monetary policy. That's the key exit strategy we've got a position for. But as well as that, it's how to position for an exit strategy uh, from this period of very weak growth that we've seen towards the end of 2015 and the early part of 2016. And it's how to position for what we think will be a reasonable exit of that low growth era as we move into quarter two. Looking at uh, some of our key trades across various areas, from a global perspective, we are expecting that global liquidity conditions were to remain relatively tight in this quarter, indeed, that is what has happened since we published this report. We were also expecting the global growth momentum to remain weak. That has happened as well. Notwithstanding that, we were expecting both of them to turn towards the end of Q1. And right now, we remain on track for that turning point. Indeed, the tight liquidity conditions that we saw towards the end of last year and earlier this year have been replaced through monetary easing from the PBOC, from the Bank of Japan, from the ECB, and even the Federal Reserve has turned to a, a less hawkish or more dovish stance. So liquidity conditions are easing. As well as that, we are starting to see the early signs of global growth momentum dropping. Now that's something that we forecast for uh, occurring for late Q Q1, so around March. Uh, and indeed, we're starting to see the early signs of that occurring. The US ISM New Orders Index, which is the single best leading indicator of global growth momentum, has started to pick up over the past two months, which points towards the trough in global growth momentum at the end of Q1. So our call regarding the global cycle remains largely intact, and that is why we are still looking for accumulation opportunities in risky assets, such as equities, uh, as we move into the latter part of this quarter. Turning to emerging markets, uh, we've been calling for an emerging market crisis to occur for well over a year now. That happened in 2015. We're expecting it to continue in 2016. And indeed, that's what's been occurring. If we look at the economic data out from emerging markets, since we published our report, it's been incredibly weak. Brazil industrial production down by over 10% year on year. Uh, if we look at Chinese data, one of the, the, the largest emerging markets, clearly data has been weak there as well. Whilst we may see a bounce in emerging markets along with all risk assets towards the end of this quarter, 
we're still very negative and there's been nothing to change our negative view uh, since the publication of, of our report. Looking at the US, uh, our view is that housing consumption will continue to expand and support the recovery. Indeed, that's happened since we published our report. Retail sales, uh, the latest data point has the price on the upside. There were upper revisions to the prior data as well. And housing data is, is starting to trough as well. So our, our call on the US being focused on housing and consumption is occurring. And our call for tropping industrial production is showing tentative signs of occurring as well. In Europe, we were concerned with regards to uh, some of the, the impact on the financial system from the emerging market crisis. Uh, indeed, that started to happen. We've obviously seen financials in Europe sold off quite heavily. We believe that that's in large part due to the emerging market crisis, uh, which is why we moved at the start of the quarter our view on financials in Europe to negative. Uh, and you've seen them sell off quite significantly in excess of 25% since we published our report. Uh, we're still positive on uh, Europe more generally uh, and we are expecting further ECB action to come. Uh, as I commented earlier at the March 10th meeting, we are expecting further ECB action. So no change there. In Japan, Japan's been an area of significant weakness and that's really the result of botched monetary policy. Uh, the Bank of Japan hasn't communicated their monetary policy well. They've surprised the market. So policy credibility is lacking there. So Japan was an area that we reduced our exposure to midway through 2015. We were looking for opportunities to increase our exposure again, uh, but clearly that's not occurring yet with the huge amount of policy uncertainty that's occurring. Uh, finally, from a regional perspective on China, our view on China remains unchanged. Uh, the challenge of exiting this era of burgeoning fixed asset investment remains. Uh, Deleveraging has been occurring in China uh, and there's further downside that we see occurring. The real risk in China is on fixed asset investment. The, the economy has been built up over the past 15 years on a boom in fixed asset investment. Fixed asset investment comprising primarily residential property but also infrastructure projects now makes up 50% of GDP. It's mathematically impossible for Chinese growth to continue to expand whilst you're trying to reduce fixed asset investment, which is what policymakers are trying to do. Uh, that shift from fixed asset investment to consumption is a goal of policymakers, but one we, that we will think will be very difficult to achieve, and indeed, so far, they're not achieving it very smoothly. So the downside risks that we see in China have clearly been manifested in the early part of this year since we published our report. From where we are right now, we are expecting some more policy stability. So we're not expecting this same precipitous rate of decline in China in the very near term, and we're talking about the next three months. But certainly our outlook for the full year is still negative. Certainly our, certainly our outlook for the coming years for fixed asset investment is negative. And we continue to see the best way to play this downside risk as being negative on anything exposed to fixed asset investment, which is primarily commodities and commodity economies and commodity currencies. Looking at commodities, we still have a negative view. The commodities boom uh, ended in 2012. We think the next commodities boom is a generation away. We remain short commodities across our tactical portfolios. We see no real reason to change that. The one area that has surprised us and that we've been wrong on was gold. Uh, gold is an area where, from a cyclical perspective, we remain negative on. We see better opportunities to inflation hedge elsewhere, such as equities. From a safe haven perspective, we see more attractive safe haven assets, such as housing. And the exposure of gold to US dollar liquidity uh, is quite negative. Notwithstanding that, when there's problems in the world, people go and buy gold. And that's exactly what we've seen over the past six weeks. Gold has rallied quite significantly. 
uh, and the call simply has been wrong. It's rallied up to above $1,200. Uh, from where we are from a cyclical perspective, we're still negative. From a secular perspective, still very negative. We still see gold as overvalued. But we must be aware that if we are expecting these emerging market problems to continue to evolve, the reality is that people are going to go and invest in gold. Uh, as I said to someone in our, our team earlier, when, uh, earlier last week, when we were removing our gold call, I said the market can stay irrational longer than we can stay solvent, and that's the case with gold. We've got to accept uh, the reality that, uh, that as irrational as it is, uh, people will go into it. Looking at credit markets, we've been negative on high yield credit for some time. High yield credit has significantly underperformed this year. We don't expect any, uh, any change to our negative view there, and indeed uh, our, our view has been confirmed by market movements. And concluding on market valuations and market momentum, look, equity markets are expensive, but bond markets are more expensive. So from a relative valuation perspective, we still uh, have a clear preference for equities over bonds. Within equities, we have that preference for developed markets as well, because there's more earning certainty. So the valuation multiples we can put on developed markets, uh, we can accurately judge the PE where, where we can't on emerging markets. And from a momentum perspective, tactical indicators remain stretched to the downside. We still see accumulation opportunities emerging towards the end of this quarter. And indeed, for our tactical portfolios, for Deltec clients, we are starting to accumulate right now. So from an investment positioning perspective, coming out from all of that, for core portfolios over the longer term, we retain our preference for equities over cash and liquids and fixed income and real assets. This capitalises on the continued global economic expansion that we still believe is mid-cycle. Despite periods of declining global growth momentum and slow liquidity growth, as we're seeing right now, the secular outlook for equities remains intact. For tactical portfolios, so over the short to medium term, we have a preference for selected equities and cash and liquids over fixed income during this current period of weak global growth momentum and changing liquidity conditions. The preference for equities is highly selective, with a preference for growth-sensitive assets over liquidity-sensitive assets, as slowing US dollar liquidity growth will significantly negatively impact carry-trade-sensitive assets, including emerging markets, high-yield credit, and commodities. So within equities, we have a preference for developed markets over emerging markets. And finally, for opportunistic portfolios or direct investments, we retain our preference for selected developed market assets and only in selected regions and sectors. And we retain a preference for those direct investments positioned for the continued yield premium in private markets over public markets and the potential for greater capital upside given the current point in the economic and investment market cycle. So I'll leave it there and open it up to any questions. Any questions from the room? Uh, um, do you, we were speaking a few days ago about uh, the housing in the U.S. and uh, today you, uh, we I believe 800,000 new homes. Uh, if we believe what uh, is the old phase, about one million new homes, we'll see the U.S. market start to rise significantly. Uh, number one, do you think it's going to happen anytime soon? Number two, how? What would be the impact of China? Could it derail? that momentum. In US housing? Yeah, in US housing. What could be the impact of China? Because, you know, China, we are all very pessimistic. China could have a crash. China within six months, two years probably. Very, very serious. Very impactful for the rest of the world. So how do you see that on the impact of housing in Asia? 
Okay, that's a good question, uh, particularly so because housing is the sector which we are most positive on uh, from a cyclical perspective and from a secular perspective. What's driving that call? Number one, income growth in the US, so real income growth that consumers are getting day in, day out, is right now running at the strongest rate that we've seen since 2005 in over a decade. Secondly, with that low income, with that strong income growth, we've also got interest rates which are very low. If we look at 30-year fixed rate mortgages, they're currently at around 3.7%. That's still around the lowest levels that we've seen in a generation plus. So you've got strong income growth, low borrowing costs, that's supporting housing. As well as that, there's a few other factors that are coming in. Number one, demographics are very strong, and this goes to the heart of your question. What we saw is we saw the baby boomer era come through and that drove an increase in home ownership. Then we saw what was called the baby boomer echo come through, uh, which arrived uh, really around the 2000s is when that baby boomer echo started coming through. And that's what actually drove those housing numbers, those housing start numbers above a million, up towards 1.5 million around uh, the peak in 2005, 2006. What we're seeing, but, but since that time, we've seen household formation rates drop. Uh, because of the recession and that's the biggest driver on the fact that people simply don't move out of home. Uh, as well as that, we just haven't seen that, that as strong a rate of, of that population growth. But what we're about to experience uh, and what we're just at the start of experiencing is what's called the baby boomer echo echo, which is all the baby boomer echo generation having children and that's happening right now. Uh, we're, we're right at the start of that. And that increase in population that we're going to get across the US is going to be a huge demographic driver that increases household formation rates. It also helps general economic growth, but, but primarily increases household formation rates. So we are expecting that housing starts should move uh, above one million, certainly over the next two years. We can expect that that will occur. Uh, and, that and more important than the fact that it'll move above a million is we can actually see the prior peak of 1.5 million being exceeded. And that's a really important point because the stocks right now, from an investment perspective, which is what we care about, uh, aren't really priced for that. The final point I want to note, just from a cyclical perspective, and I'm, I'm surprised that no one's really picked up on this, is uh, when people default on their loans in the US, they typically get seven years, uh, a period of seven years when they really can't go for another loan. The peak of housing foreclosures and therefore default was in late 2009, early 2010. So in late 2016, early 2017, all of those people who foreclosed will suddenly have clean credit records again and they'll be able to go out and get loans. And that'll be a huge driver of housing as well from a cyclical perspective that no one's really looking at right now. So that's where we are on US housing in isolation. What about the impact from China? Well, clearly Chinese growth is going to slow. What it will mean is that the capital flows, in the first instance, capital outflow from China will increase. We've seen a huge outflow of capital from China over the past two years. In fact, that's been one of the key reasons to be bearish on China. Uh, that's likely to increase over the next couple of years as Chinese growth declines. Uh, that should actually boost US housing and it will boost housing in a lot of gateway cities. In fact, there's a very clear correlation between capital outflows from China and house prices in the gateway cities of San Francisco, Vancouver, Sydney, and to a certain extent, London and New York as well. So over the next two years, we'll actually see a boost in, uh, in potential boost in house prices on the back of that capital outflow continuing. But after that period concludes, uh, capital outflows from China won't increase at all because China will have simply less money. Uh, and that will have a, a negative impact, but we're hoping that by then uh, the, the, the US housing market demographic story will start to come through. So short term, it's actually a positive. Uh, medium term, 
uh, it, it's a negative. Any other questions from the room? So, I'm curious um, your thoughts on the British pound. So I know they have what's on an all time seven year low. Yeah. Right now, calling for the Brexit. The Brexit. So, just curious what your thoughts are in the short term and longer term impact. So in the very short term between now and June when the uh, referendum's uh, forecast to occur, uh, it's announced. Announced. Uh, June 23rd, uh, there's, we're still looking for volatility there. Uh, and the short, term, the short term impact is actually negative because you could see some capital outflows from, uh, from uh, the UK which would be negative for the sterling. But if we actually look from a medium term perspective at the sterling versus other currencies such as the US dollar and the euro, uh, we're actually quite positive simply because we look at the U.S. economic, uh, the U.K. Economy, we've got stronger economic growth occurring, and we've got inflation, which is starting to rise at a greater rate than, than what's happening. So those two factors combined will lead to tighter monetary policy. The interest rate differential between the U.K. and the euro, uh, well, between the U.K. and Europe, will expand, uh, and that should lead to further capital flows into the U.K. So it's short-term negative because of the uncertainty, but beyond that referendum and actual positive if we look back at the underlying economic cycle of the UK. Any questions from the phone line? Uh, Adel, uh, would you be, uh, since you're as strong on housing, would you also be strong on home supplying stocks like Home Depot, Lowe's, etc.? Uh, absolutely, is a simple answer. Uh, so we're positive on housing uh, and we're also positive on the US consumer. And those housing stocks such as Home Depot, Lowe's, etc., are actually the key beneficiaries of both of those themes. Uh, so in our tactical portfolios, we currently have a 6% allocation to uh, a, an ETF called XHB. Uh, that's the ticker of it. That ticker uh, has Home Depot, Lowe's, et cetera, all as the top holdings within it. Uh, so very positive on them. What's that symbol again? It's X for X-ray, H for housing, and B for building. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, any other questions? Yes, I want to ask you, Atul, as, as your views change on oil, because I see that on commodities, you're positive in agriculture, commodities, selected energy, but what about your views on oil? I know that we have discussed this already, both of us, but um, you're still not going to be investing or, or you're waiting for some moment, momentum? Uh, okay, so in terms of our view on oil, to be, to be clear on our view, we are expecting uh, oil prices to end the year higher. The short term, uh, we have no idea what's going to happen. The volatility is not associated with supply and demand. Uh, it's not even associated with US dollar liquidity conditions. It's associated with speculation. So in the short term, it's very difficult to make a call on oil and, uh, you know, it's too difficult to make a call. It's often best to not do anything. Uh, from a medium-term perspective, we're looking over the balance of the year. We are expecting oil prices to end the year higher. We think that oil uh, could end the year uh, certainly above $30 and closer to $40. Uh, the reason mm -hmm. being that uh, it, it's to be internally consistent, we are positive on our view for global growth for the balance of the year, uh, and that should be supportive of oil, which is uh, whose value is derived from global growth and the demand for it. Uh, in terms of uh, our actual positioning, we still don't have posi a position in oil just because of that short-term uncertainty. Um, we were in a fortunate position uh, in terms of our style of being able to look at any asset globally and being long or short, and there's plenty of other opportunities out there that are easier to call, uh, which is why we don't have a position right now, long or short. Oh. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? 
Okay, one final thing. Everyone's been asking uh, since we published the quarterly outlook who the photo is on the front page. It's actually a photo of me. Um, so <laughs> just to clarify that because I think everyone's asked me and I haven't answered it yet. Uh, so I'll leave that there. Uh, if there are any questions uh, from the call, please feel free to uh, uh, give myself or your Deltec representative a call at any time. Otherwise, we look forward to speaking with you next week. Thank you. Thank you.